0: Hey, this is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 40 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you for listening in for each episode. If you don't already, subscribe to our podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms and visit our website, adventuresinadvising.com, as well as on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado,
1: here's
2: the episode.
3: And welcome to Adventures in Advising. It's our 15th episode of 2021, or 40th in total. We have a couple of fantastic guests joining us on this episode.
0: And those two interviews are with Dr. Derek Furukawa from University of Hawaii at Manoa and Daniel Gleason from California State University, Long Beach. But before we get to Derek and Daniel... Got a few comments from listeners. First is from Lorraine Ambrosio, who said, you both do such a wonderful job. Thank you for engaging segments and wonderful interviews. And Cheryl Hodge, who wrote, there was an episode that centered around the professionalization of academic advising that I found very helpful. I think there is this perception that advising is paper pushing, but there is a real art and science to the profession. And Ann Bingham, who wrote, I have really enjoyed the podcast. It gives a fantastic insight into advising on a global scale. Thank you so much, Lorraine, Sherilyn, and Ann.
3: Thanks to Sarah Cook for reaching out on Twitter to let us know that she really enjoyed episode thirty-nine. Sarah also just became an Acada member. Welcome, Sarah. So let's jump into our first interview, and that is with Dr. Derek Furukawa.
0: Dr. Derek Furukawa is the director of the Advising Center for the College of Arts, Languages, and Letters at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He grew up in Poway, California, and got his bachelor's degrees in English and Spanish at the University of Northern Colorado. He then moved to the East Coast to pursue a master's in educational leadership and policy studies at the University of Maryland College Park, where he began working in academic advising in the College of Education. He then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, to pursue a PhD in educational leadership at UNLV and worked in first-year programs and at the Wilson Advising Center in the College of Liberal Arts. After completing his doctorate, he then moved to the University of Nevada, Reno, where he served as the Assistant Vice Provost for Undergraduate Academic Advising and Student Achievement. Most recently, he moved to Honolulu, Hawaii to serve in his current role as the Director of the Advising Center. He has been in academic advising for over 20 years and has been actively involved in Nacada since 2013. In the field of academic advising, he feels that you can always be surprised in both good ways and bad, and you're always in the unique position to learn from those experiences to continue to help others along the path to success. Derek, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it.
3: We're uh, delighted. Derek, to, to have you on the podcast and Matt went through your bio. Uh, very impressive and we will have lots to delve into. But we always like to begin by giving our listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and just to, I suppose, hear about your journey into higher education and where you are now. Was education the field you always wanted to work in or how did you, you find yourself where you are now?
1: Yes, I guess if if I start way back at the beginning uh, from high school days, it was kind of a tear between essentially what both my parents did. So between going into engineering and going into education. Um, And ultimately what it came down to was uh, I got into my calculus course in high school. Um, I was getting a solid D and I said, maybe engineering is not the field for me to go into. So I switched it up and said, education is the direction I want to go. Um, then at that point, I was looking at schools, um, chose to go to Northern Colorado because it was known as a good teaching school. Um, and then I got involved in things there, uh, basically was doing early childhood education. So like preschool, kindergarten age kids um, was in observing the classroom. And then of course, somebody said something along the lines of blah, 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 diapers. And I was like, oh my gosh, wait, I got to change diapers in this job. I don't know if that's something I want to do. So then I said, let me go for a little older students. So I switched to elementary education. Um, I got into a classroom setting there. um, And same type of thing. There were some issues there having grown up in California. uh, There was trying to get a student down from the jungle gym and back in the classroom. And I'm trying to talk them down. And uh, of course, I get reprimanded by the teacher that said, just pick them up and bring them over there. And I said, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm going to get sued. And then, of course, they said, you must be from California. Um, and then said, Do Yo, you can just grab them and bring them over to the circle that we're sitting in. So, um, again, it was kind of one of those things where I said, maybe I'll look a little bit older. Um, and then I went into a bilingual bicultural education uh, for high school, and I enjoyed going that direction. Um, but it was actually my involvement as an undergrad that got me into doing other things. So um, I was involved in some service organizations, um, but also my last couple of years I got involved with the student government. So um, during that time, you know, we were dealing with some issues for the university as a whole, um, the potential of maybe the university being merged into another system in the state. So um, it ended up being a lot of things where we had to be advocates for our fellow students. So um, in doing that, one of my mentors said, hey, Derek, you know, you, you can do this as a career. And I said, wow, I really? I didn't know that. So then um, on a whim, I started looking at schools at that point. Uh, I got to do a master's. I got to learn more about it. And that's when um, I ultimately chose University of Maryland College Park because I enjoyed the campus. It seemed like a great place to be. Um, and then how I fell into academic advising came down to the fact that as a Grad student who didn't know what the heck was going on. I ended up looking and saying, I need to get this GA ship that everybody's talking about. Um, Otherwise, I can't afford to go to school um, because I can't take that much in loans out. And then, sure enough, I just was applying for anything available, but that was during the summer, which is after many assistantships have already been filled for the year. So ultimately, I finally got an interview. I want to say it was in August. Uh, for a position. And in interviewing for it, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally willing to do this. Let me know what I need to do. And the person interviewing me actually said, well, based upon your resume, this doesn't seem like a good fit for you. Um, to which I said, no, I'm willing to do it. And basically job was data entry for graduate application, graduate student applications for a college. And I said, no, I, I will do it. Like you have set me down, I will do the work. To me, I thought it's a job. I want to have a job. Like, that's what it's all about. Um, And then they said, well, actually, the reason why I say that is because we've got another position that will work more directly with undergraduate students. What do you think? And I'm like, yeah, I would love that, you know? So it ended up being that I fell into the one that dealt with academic advising. So I worked with a special population of um, an echelon of students that's just below honor students. Uh, but it was a living learning community where they had kind of a common interest. So uh, many of the students in that living learning community were education majors, which is why we had an advisor dedicated to working with those students in particular. So um, that's how I got into it, enjoyed it, started like feeling it out and saying, you know, this is definitely a good thing. It turned into a full-time job in that uh, same office. So um, at that point, I just started working in advising and really enjoyed it. And then when I moved to Nevada, I said, "Let me switch it up a little bit." I worked in first-year programs, uh, which was, you know, a form of academic advising, um, a little bit more on the retention side for freshman students. But when I did that, I enjoyed that. And then uh, they were like, "Yeah, we're cutting the office. Like we're reorganizing, and that office is now gone. So you're out of luck. No more assistantship." So uh, then I started applying for other positions and got back in academic advising because since I was doing my doctorate, I also said. I want to be able to do a field that I'm familiar with, and I feel I have the time to be able to put towards a full-time position. So then I started kicking into that to be able to um, start working in the advising area and then really haven't turned back since then. Yeah, and I
0: always love hearing everyone's stories, how they got into it, and especially just f- falling into it. In this case, you were applying for one position, like, hey, we actually have something else for you, and it kind of just like continued from there. And I know we'll probably get into talking about your dissertation, but I wanted to... Maybe take it further back to maybe fifth grade, because I was reading some article from the Nevada Today where you got interviewed and you mentioned that your fifth grade teacher also was like an inspiration to you to pursue the field of education. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, it was uh, her name was Diane Self and she was a a great teacher, Um, really kind of inspired me to kind of go in and be in that setting. So that's when I first kind of looked at education as an option. Um, to go into, because I said, I I like what she has been able to do with the class. It's got me more excited about being in school and doing things. So um, that influence is really where I said, I think that is a, a type of setting that I could be. In. in fact, later on, I ended up nominating her for another like teacher of the year type award at that point. But uh, um, I don't even know if, how much she knew about it, the fact that I had uh, nominated her later on, because I think it was probably like Eight years later, that I did that. So, um, but it gives you a sense of like that's the impact that an individual made on my life early on. That kind of helped propel me into the education field.
3: And and clearly, you know, education became your major passion. And um, you know, you you've gone on to study it as uh, the masters and as um, Matt mentioned the the P, uh, PhD as well. And in terms of, of your your dissertation, your doctoral thesis, um, it. it an in a really interesting piece where you you kind of um, looked, I suppose, at the inspiration maybe behind some student decisions. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, more about that, uh, Derek, and and what was you know the what was the the question you were seeking to answer, and what were some of your findings?
1: Yeah, you know, it developed over time. So um, as many anybody has done a dissertation knows, like that topic doesn't always stick with what you want to do. Um, Of course, it wasn't my initial topic either. Um, That one got turned down in like a snap of a finger because I was actually looking at student affairs and academics and kind of seeing it. And I said, is a dissertation process like going through a pledge process in Greek life? Um, And they said, do not touch that with a 10-foot pole. And I said, all right, fine, I'll back off. And then I looked at another way. Um, But I was actually really interested in the technology piece. So that's what guided me to... The direction of um, uh, an aspect of recruitment and student decision making. So I was looking at it from a standpoint of are websites or are, is technology something that exists that helps stu- students make a decision about what schools they want to go to? Um, but it became too narrow because at the time where I started looking at it, that wasn't really heavily big on there. I don't think that social media was huge yet. so. It was really not a topic that was like primed with enough information to really go off. So I broadened it to look at, you know, what are some other things I can look at? And I tailored it to be able to look at what are high achieving students. So students who have good grades, um, what are they using to choose what school they go to? And the reason why I chose that population is because if they're high achieving, then they got into multiple places. I mean, it's almost not a question like if you're smart and you've got the background for it, you're getting into multiple places so you actually have a choice to make as opposed to a student that's like, well, I took this one because it's the one school I applied to and I got in, you know. So looking at that that choice process of what was going on. Um, so I was looking at it as a whole, like what are the influences there? I had some ideas from it, um, but I wanted to inquire a little bit more with that technology piece just to see was there something that was there uh, that made a difference. And ultimately what it came down to was the one finding in regards to technology was that, websites were never reasons why a student chose to go to a school. However, they are reasons why they chose not to go to a school. So they'd go to it and be like, well, uh, to put it bluntly, this website sucks, so I'm not going to go there. So, like, it was that quick of a decision when technology had something to do with it. So it wasn't about how cool and how fancy their website looked um, that made a decision, they were already leaning towards that school to begin with. And then it was really more a matter of it was a way of eliminating choices when they were making decisions. Um, But then the other things that came out from there is that obviously there were things like financial influences, which obviously make a difference on a student standpoint, Um, friends and family and kind of what they have said, as well as some of the reputation that uh, they perceive um, a particular school to have. Um, but then last thing that was probably the most significant and most relevant to kind of our field was that the connection that they had with an individual. So, um, and it was actually something that I experienced when I was applying to colleges uh, for an undergrad degree, which is that those that took the time to kind of reach out and make an individual connection with a student, that student was definitely, that was the deciding point that made them say, I'm going to choose this school. So you know, I look at it from one school uh, who I will not name, but that school who I applied to sent me back a form letter um, saying, Thank you for visiting our campus. Um, we hope you choose our school, blah blah blah. The other school that I visited on the same trip said we uh, we it was a handwritten note that said thank you for visiting our campus, um, but also it said and please thank your little brother again for sitting out on the tour so another parent could sit, could be a part of it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like the fact that they remember to that detail, this is definitely a school that's going to care about me. So um, that was kind of one of those things that I saw. And that was consistent within how the students chose the schools they went, they went to in the study was that they looked at it from a standpoint of I had a connection. And that may have been with you know, a recruiting person that was there. It may have been with an academic advisor that they had met with and talked to or somebody from the college that they um, spoke to uh, to be able to connect them and help them out in that transition. So um, that's where I kind of looked at it from a standpoint of this is why when I look at things that I do from an advisor standpoint and things I do with recruitment, it's kind of for the same reason. Like these are the connections that started early can really help a student get a good influence on kind of what is what their experience is going to entail when they get there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
0: Yeah, so they treated the students like students, like individuals, and not as a number. And so that's, that's fascinating. It's great. Make it personable. And, you know, fast forward today and you're, Current role right now is as the director of the advising center for the College of Arts, Languages, and Letters. So, for those who want to know more about University of Hawaii at Manoa, how would you describe your institution, and what does your role as director entail?
1: So, uh, probably the first thing I like to tell people is it's not just a, a big beach party um, at the school, which is a lot. I think a lot of perception is like you hear Hawaii, you think vacation, and it's like no, that's not the case. Um, that uh, there is a whole lot of kind of high academic activity that's being done on the campus. So um, one of the things that when they, when I was looking at the school that they uh, described, which I love the description, was it was, uh, you know, I hear from the mainland, like, oh, it's a land-grant institution. It's like, okay, I know what that is. Um, but then to hear them describe it as this is a land, sea, and space-grant institution, then I was like, oh, okay, land I understand, See, I understand. Wow, space—that that's really cool. So I think that that aspect of things gives you a sense of kind of what is being done um, from an academic aspect uh, of what the university has. So um, what the what the institution is like, honestly, I have a hard time describing that. And my reasoning for that is because I started this position and moved here in February of 2020, which as anybody knows, was not the best time to move into it. So I got a solid three weeks of like on-campus time before we were sent home. So knowing that, I didn't haven't gotten a real good sense of kind of the culture and kind of what it's like being on campus yet. Um, But uh, what I have done through meetings and interactions with other staff, it's a very caring community. Um, And the community piece of it is something that I have definitely felt uh, from the very beginning is it's not a matter of, you know, you're a student here. It's a matter of, you know, you're a part of the, the University of Hawaii family. And I think that that little bit of a difference there as far as how that kind of is embraced and kind of looked as a community feel to it. I think that that is one of the big highlights of being here.
3: Yeah, um, I, I think community is something that kind of shines through in in your research and and your interests. So it's good to hear that you're at at an institution where that feels right. And I suppose the the coming year you you'll get to spend more than than three weeks on, on campus. Fingers crossed. Um, one of the things that I think would be interesting, Derek, is because you have experience of being at a number of different institutions and. Increasing your responsibility in your leadership roles, um, can you? We we had um, Dr. Banks Blair on the previous episode, who um, you know had talked about, I suppose, his approach. That can you talk to us a little bit about how you've approached,
1: you know, changing jobs and institutions? So, first of all, in the work of an academic advisor, one of the coolest assets that I have is the fact that I've been to all those places. Because I have a student that says, oh, well, you know, I'm from Colorado. And I'm like, oh, cool. I did my undergrad there. Or I grew up, you know, I'm in Southern California. I'm like, well, what area? Because I grew up down there. Or they're even in Northern California. And I would say, oh, I've done recruitment out there for Nevada. Or, of course, if they're in Nevada, obviously, I know kind of the whole state for that matter. Uh, But even if they're coming from the East Coast, I can connect with them that way from my time in Maryland. So, That little piece, I think, is huge to be able to have that easier connection with students. Um, I'm looking at those details. I'm seeing that. Um, I had a fun one where it was a phone appointment and it was an area code on there. And I asked, I was like, well, it looks like it's a Maryland area code. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, I had to pay attention to make sure I wasn't confusing a Maryland area code with an LA area code, because one's 310, the other one's 301. And they were like, How do you know that? And I was like, well, you know, it's just from being around and seeing all that and being familiar with those areas. So I think that connection is really good from it. But the other thing is, each institution is very different. So I've been able to see how different institutions do things. So every time I go to a new institution, one of the advantages is I have a lot of times where I would say, well, I can tell you three ways that it's been done before, you know, and because I've literally seen it directly, here's how they are, here's how they differ. These are the pitfalls of each of them. So it does help to be able to get that as opposed to only having people that are from that institution in the conversation and only experience that one direction, um, other than what they may have heard in, say, a session that they went to on a professional development uh, uh, trip or something like that. So that piece, I think, is very helpful. Um, also, it has allowed me to kind of see different systems that are being used, So. I'm, student information systems that are being used by institutions, different products that are out there um, that are being used by folks. So I've seen a number of different ones as well. So that has also helped to be able to see, hey, here are things that we could look at implementing if we needed to, um, but also the alternatives of, I've been through good times and bad times economically. So it'd be like, well, the last time that we are cutting you know, hours and doing furloughs and whatever it was, here's what we ended up doing to be able to save money in the way that we approach something. So I think that that has really been helpful just to be able to have that information um, and that experience from different settings to be able to implement some work, some don't. So if I look at Maryland, which is a very uh, residential campus uh, for the students who are um, in the area there. Um, But then when I go to UNLV, it was a very commuter campus. So um, two different approaches to it, um, So seeing those, how those vary and how, you know, things that we did on one campus are not going to work on the next campus because it's just a different population that was there. So um, we joke about that. You know, you find little ways uh, to communicate that. Um, One of the things I've been doing a lot of is I end up having to work a lot with parents. So communicating with the parents and having to kind of resonate with them as far as uh, what all that means. So I always scare them and I'll, I'll tell this story. I tell them, when I was at UNLV, the biggest uh, issue that we had on campus was PCP, and they were like, "Oh my god, like the drug," and I would say, "No, the concept of them going from parking lot to classroom and then to parking lot, and that's their exposure to the campus." So I'm like, "But that was the biggest issue." You know, we wanted to try to make the campus more sticky so that students would stick around beyond just going to class when they're commuting in for a, um, a more commuter-based campus. So I'm um, looking at those type of things and. Um, but saying it in that way would resonate with the parents to be like, ooh, okay, now I remember, you said that this was the case. Um, one of the other ones I, I would use a lot of times with uh, that helps in academic advising is that for a semester of schools, we have kind of the same time frame that always happens. So I would like to say, look, um, here's how parents can help us out. When it comes to registration, your students aren't going to be used to registering early for anything because they haven't had to do that in a high school setting. So they need to think ahead. And usually the way I'll put it is they may not be thinking about an hour ahead of time from now, let alone three months from now, what courses they should be in. So knowing that, I say, here's where you can partner with us. And I usually ask a question, which is kind of dumb, but usually it makes a point. Uh, how many of you know when Halloween is? And everybody's like, oh, I know that. I can, I can answer that question. And I say, okay, great. So um, Halloween. Halloween. You should have a conversation with your student about whether or not they've gotten any academic advising or whether or not they plan to do that soon at the point of Halloween. If you haven't had that conversation or the response is, what, what do you mean academic advisor? Then at that point it's Halloween and you should be a little scared because they're probably late in the process and they need to get their, you know, rear end in gear. So um, little ways like that, again, to be able to, have them feel like this is a, a good partnership with the parents and how they're communicating with their students, but giving the students the freedom to be able to make that choice and be able to you know, jump into it. Now, a lot of times that can be early for them, but um, sometimes it can be at last minute for them to be able to um, still be able to see an advisor and get the right guidance for courses for the upcoming semester. But um, letting them know that you've got Halloween and then you've got spring break, because spring break generally falls at the same time of year. And I said, if they haven't talked to or thought about what they need to do for advising, their break is over. They need to actually focus on what they need to plan for the next semester. So um, usually it's a very quick conversation, but at least it gets them thinking about what needs to happen next. And I think that that, from an advising standpoint, can help us out when students are like, we're doing this early enough that we're not last minute calling you going, hey, I'm supposed to register today. What do I need to take? And those are always the difficult conversations because it's like oh and i have 15 minutes with you so yeah that's that's a little harder for all of our jobs to be able to do that
0: yeah because at that point we have 15 minutes and probably most of the classes are closed at this point (laughs) exactly but i think that's fantastic advice i mean you're saying it's little ways but it has such a huge impact where you're able to part like you're saying partner you're able to collaborate with Advisor, student, and parents, and everyone has a piece where they can help each other out. And whether it's just reminding them about advising coming up, or hey, registration's gonna be coming up, we gotta start thinking about classes. So it's a great way to, for everyone to kind of team up. And speaking of teams, that's kind of how Nakata in a way is, and where we're also able to get involved and, and meet. And that's kind of how we met at the Nakata Region 9 conference from a few years back in Reno, when you were chairing the conference. Can you talk about your experience chairing the region conference? You know why you chose to be chair and any takeaways that that came from it.
1: Yeah, so um, it was getting to a point because I had kind of been on like a steering committee with the um, with the region as well. So I was a liaison for Nevada uh, for the state of Nevada, and um, essentially starting to look at it, it was a realization of we should probably hold this conference again. But actually, it was actually, as the region started coming up with, we should have a specific like rotation of what states are hosting the regional conference. And, you know, that way it gets moved around a bit. It's not all like in California, um, or or for that matter, in Southern California, you know, like it moves around a bit and different folks get the opportunity to um, be involved in that. So um, we're looking at this rotation coming around. Um, I actually had uh, run for region chair uh, a previous year and didn't get it. Um, But then I said, all right, so what can I do to still help? So I said, let me take the lead on this conference. So I said, I'm going to plan on doing this conference. And then I set the year. Um, I want to say it was 2017. I'm trying to remember all the years on that. I'm probably off on that. Um, But one of the other things I also was doing was I said, we haven't had a state conference um, in several years. So we were doing it every other year. I want to say we did it 2008 and then 2010. Um, and then 2012, again, wasn't the greatest time of the years or anything like that. So it didn't get picked up. Um, and then so I said, let's do a conference in 2014 in Reno for the state. And I use it as, hey, here's a dry run. We're going to do a state conference. We're going to invite our folks from across the state, you know, to come up and and visit the campus to see what's going on. We'll host it here, do all that. And then what ended up happening from that was that the people that I had helping out on that one then got excited and said, well, when's our next one? When are we going to do this again? And I was able to say, actually, we do have a date, already set, and we're going to be hosting the regional here. So we're just going to ramp it up to – a bigger scale, but it gave them a dry run to be able to kind of look at it and be like, here it is with a smaller scale, smaller number of people. So that now when we have a larger group of people, we'll be able to just take our things, scale them up and be able to um, do what we need to. So a lot of folks that did one thing want to do the exact same thing for the next conference. Cause they said, this is what I know well, and I can do this and we you know, have contacts or, or whatever within the, the area. Um, and we also looked at things like how do we get uh how do we get other people to see Reno beyond what they maybe had seen in, I don't know, Reno 911 or sister act, you know, like their only exposures to uh, the city of Reno a lot of times. So it was kind of to defy that a little bit. So we specifically partnered to make sure that we had the campus as a site for it so that they could see what was going on um, from the campus and see that um, because that's a lot of times different than what you see for the, the rest of the area.
3: And you've, I suppose, been involved in a number of different areas with NACADA. Um I know another area you were involved in. You were chair of the peer advising and mentoring community. Um, I think your your photo still pops up uh, when you you click on that uh, on the NACADA website. But I know that's an area of of in, of particular interest for you. So maybe you could talk to us about the involvement with the the community, but also for listeners who are interested in the topic, any insights or advice you can offer.
1: Yeah, so um, I, I will say I was unfortunately not able to finish that term, that two-year term on it, um, uh, because I had to kind of take in some other responsibilities on my campus, and that kind of took priority. Um, but ultimately, my reasoning for that was because we had not had anything peer advising related on the University of Nevada campus. So um, knowing that and actually partnering with um, a gentleman in the student affairs area who uh, we worked on stuff, started bringing some other ideas of, oh, here's what I've seen at in other institutions. And then from there, I said, yeah, let's see what we can get this to work with. So um, had some funds um, that we had. So I said, let's do a peer advising program. We started very small for students to help out, to figure that out, um, having them do some advising in there. But probably more so because the office that I was working out of or working with in particular dealt with undeclared or undecided students um, or exploratory, uh, depending on what your institution calls them, those students, we got a lot of flack of, well, you shouldn't be recruiting into that area, so what are you going to have them do? So we looked at some of the bigger things of how do we deal with certain populations of students and doing programming for those students, so students in the residence halls, um, talking about things like, hey, how to best kind of manage your time and to manage what you're doing um, from your academic standpoint to be able to be more successful. Um, But also things like sitting in the uh, dining hall um, during lunch and just saying, hey, you know, the scheduled classes just came out. Have you already seen an advisor yet? Simple conversations like that just to get people thinking about, uh, especially freshman students who hadn't gone through this before, okay, no, how do I get that set up? And then they help them get that set up for an appointment with their advisors. So I think that was really what we ended up doing and focusing on there. Because of the, um, the success I got from that, uh, I ended up having them present at a conference. Um, uh, so they presented, co-presented with me at the national conference when it was in Las Vegas. So I... Um, Nothing quite like a, a sell for students to be like, hey, we want to take you to Las Vegas while well, we stayed in Caesars Palace, and you just have to do this in a one-hour presentation, but like, it's very heavily on you. Obviously, all four of them said, yes, let me join in and do this. So turned out well there, and then got connected with some other um, folks during that time, expanded it a little bit, started working on the steering committee for the Peer Advising Commission, and then said, um, when it then switched over to uh, the advising group, then I said, all right, let me, uh, let me go ahead and run for this because I think this would be a good thing to be able to continue on with. Um, and then ultimately, it was a whole comedy of things that happened with that committee And that when I had to step down, the person who actually stepped in for me um, afterwards was one of my employees um, who was actually one of those first four peer advisors that I worked with. So uh, funny how it all turns around that way. Um, but then he couldn't finish the term either because he went on to optometry school and then I had to get passed on to somebody else. And then the intern person that finished the term um, is somebody who I work with now um, at University of Hawaii at Manoa. So like it all came full circle when everything was said and done. Um, but now um, I don't do it as far as coordination from a campus as a whole, but um, the system or the program here at, at University of Hawaii uh, places their Uh, peer advisors into different colleges. So um, I do have some peer advisors that I work with specifically to help with my college. And they will work with um, actually advising some of the new students and getting them transition and getting them to know some of the resources and how to use those. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business,
0: you know, you've done a lot within Nakata, whether it's uh, being a chair of Region 9, being a chair of the uh, peer advising mentoring and advising community. Uh, you've presented a lot at various conferences from peer advising, collaboration, I think Harry Potter was one of them, um, cultural artifacts, Gen Z, leadership. I mean, you name it, you've done it. I'm interested in, in terms of, let's say someone's interested in presenting at a conference, but You know, from your experience, do you have any advice that you would have for someone that just wants to try to get started with putting an idea on paper?
1: Yeah, you know, I would like to just say, you don't need to do it alone. And that's what I think is daunting, especially for somebody who's a first-time presenter, um, to look at it and be like, all right, I got to come up with an idea. I got to come up with a great program. How am I actually going to do this? I don't know. I've never done it before. Partner with somebody. Uh, and have them help out. I've actually got a couple of groups now that I'm working with um, where all we've got is like some periodic meetings that we have and some shared documents where we're putting ideas down there and putting possible directions that we can go so that we can eventually take that and say, here's how we're gonna be able to create um, a session um, or a proposal. And uh, essentially that's a good way to do it because that way it's not 100% on you. Um, You're working with a colleague um, and that colleague may be from your institution, it may be from another institution, um, but either way, you're getting that ability to be able to collaborate on something so that you're bringing different aspects to it to be able to really uh, get a good sense of what's what you can present and a good perspective for people to be able to see. Because I know that going to like uh, an annual Nakata event and, and seeing the breadth of institutions on there, um, I worked at all public institutions, so... When I look at a a program and then I realize, oh, this is from a thousand student private university. Okay, well, maybe that's not going to work for here because um, we have 2000 students in our college alone. So, um, so our own facet of the university. So knowing that it's like looking at the applicability of that, but bringing different perspectives from different settings oftentimes helps you widen the range of people that you can actually work with on it. So. Um, so yeah, so that's what I say, just kind of get working with them, um, have that connection. I think that connection piece of it is is really the important part of it. Um, I know that one of my presentations that I did where we had a, a surfing theme for it, who is now a colleague here at Manoa, um, but what we ended up doing was I was talking about my time in San Diego and she was talking about her time in Hawaii and like the surfing commonalities that were on there, um, but essentially what we ended up doing was We ended up meeting at a um, advising group meeting during a conference. We're connected by the chair of that um, uh, group that was there that was running the session and said, hey, connect with these people and see what's going on. And all that ended up happening was I said, I just I sent an email and said, I just saw a note that said I should touch base with you six months uh, from the conference. And I'm touching base now. Like, do you remember what that was about? Um, and that's all it started as. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I think we're supposed to work together on something. Um, so sure enough, I was like, oh, let's look at a project. Let's look at a program. What can we do? And we started kind of coming up with ideas and eventually came up with a session that we were able to present. So um, I think that that's kind of the, the type of stuff that can be done. Um, I once did a presentation at Southern California about um, changing some culture stuff within and how to do that. Um, And essentially it was kind of a workshop style. So I gave every one of them and said, here's the paper I want you to fill out and return back to me along with your contact information. But I want you to also tell me like, what are the things that you're looking for? What are you trying to change? What's the timeline in which that can be done? Uh, Who are the stakeholders that you need to have involved in that? Um, what are the challenges that you foresee on it? Um, so, we worked on that as a group and I collected them all. And it was a lot of my work on my end after the fact. But what I ended up doing was then setting dates. And again, because it's not hard to do, just put those in my calendar to say, send emails out to these folks and said, Hey, you said it was going to take six months to do that. It's your three month point. How's your progress on this? What's going on? So, it was my way of being like, I don't even know who you are. Um, or I shouldn't say that, I knew who a lot of them are, but I don't know what's going on in your situation in your campus, but let's talk about what's going on. And the hardest thing is you get inspired at a conference or a session, and then you forget that, oh, I said I was gonna do that. So that was my way of saying, get an inspiration in my session. I will follow up with you to be able to remind you, like, how far along have you been on this? Um, And that worked out really well. And some folks were like, actually, that got done. And other folks are like, I totally forgot, but now's a prime time for me to ask. So I'm going to go ahead and follow up now. So I think that that really explained that point of forgetting to continue on with things you're inspired to work on.
3: Yeah, the, the utilization of the calendar and, and follow up for very useful. Um, now, uh, you do have a phenomenally impressive CV. And as Matt said, like you you have extensive presenting experience and one of the things that you presented on more than a decade ago, talk about ahead of the curve was online communities. And you've talked about, I suppose, your your interest in technology. And I'm just wondering over the the last year, especially since you you started the in the new position, you know, three weeks before you had to to move off campus, have there been learnings or 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 new technologies or new approaches or new thoughts that you've had in terms of the utilization of technology, Derek?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that uh probably what has helped is um uh, and and a lot of folks have seen this before. Um you get into an office and you know, you have maybe assume a leadership role from the beginning and then in that case you are ready and roaring to like make changes and adopt new things and get things going. Um uh, but you always have some people that are lagging behind on it and are like, "Uh, ah, I don't know. We've never done that before." Like um the whole naysayer aspect of things. So, I think that One thing that, for me, helped out really well coming here um, and hitting a pandemic was it forced us to be like, hey, these technology things that we haven't done, guess what? We have to do them. Like, there is no choice now. We have to get them implemented. So it ended up working out well to be able to implement those new things. Um, And they've all kind of helped overall, even to the extent that I'm sure we're seeing a lot, and and you will probably have seen it as well. Um, Folks that are looking at it going, why do we need to go back the way that we did it before because it seems to be working fine as it is right now um so i think that that is um, a good example of kind of the culture shifting a little bit and folks now starting to be like technology isn't a horrible thing anymore like this can really help us out in these different settings you know looking at things like um video meetings and um beyond just like having to deal with phone calls i think that has been really um, helpful for people to see but then also other things like to what extent is are our emails even getting through especially now you know like at this point people get an email they're just like okay that's just now piled on to all my emails that i'm getting as opposed to what are we doing as far as utilizing anything with the text ability to the students and if we can utilize that maybe that will help increase um, our ability to be able to work with those students more directly so Um, I think those technology things are very helpful. Back in the day when I did that presentation, um, early days, it was back in the, we don't trust what this Facebook thing is. So that's why I did the presentation on it. So, um, and when I did that, the focus was really looking at actually some of the policy stuff that went around it, which is, I said, what are the policies that you have if you're creating this Facebook group, who can post the answers on there? Is it the right people posting? Is a student telling another student wrong information? So, like, who's policing Who's the authority within here? Um, what's going on? What responsibility do you have if somebody has something on their individual Facebook page? Are you responsible at all about reporting that, technically? No, because you shouldn't be going into that profile anyways to see it. But it was kind of that same thing of, like, what exists? What are your responsibilities? And I think that's what people who didn't want to adopt that way looked at it and said, I don't want to step foot in it because there's so much more maintenance that I need to do if we're going to continue that. So that's what I had presented on. Gosh. Yeah. I guess it was over a decade ago. So I want to say maybe 2008 that I presented that. Um, So it's been a while looking at that, but yeah, it's, it's developed. Things have been adopted more. Um, But even on that, I'd look at it and say, well, you know, like if somebody was like, Oh, let's do Facebook, I would say, uh, is that the right Method to actually reach to our students these days. And then if they say, I don't know why, what are they using? Then I'd say, well, let's bring in some of our students because I'll tell you we're not using that. Or we keep that to make our family happy um, and to make sure mom and dad know that they can contact me in a way. But that's pretty much it. So knowing that it's kind of a matter of how things have shifted, you know, having to be able to adapt to those things. Um, And then, uh, like I said, it's getting more and more. Uh, likely that people are able to adapt to it and uh, integrate technologies into uh, their advising practices.
0: Yeah, it's all about adapting and like, yeah, I guess life is always changing, the technologies we use are always changing. And I guess as we wind down with with this interview, um, as many institutions are looking at being on campus for fall or uh, returning back in some form of in-person instruction, how are things looking at your institution?
1: So uh, they are, we're getting people back on there. We technically soft opened the campus um, on uh, beginning of June. And when I say soft opened, I mean we removed the big giant sign that said campus is closed. Um, So that was our soft opening. So like now it didn't deter people from going there, Uh, but it didn't invite people to go there uh, as we kind of transition. Right now, um, a lot of our administrative staff, the people that are running offices on a day-to-day basis, Um, they are in. Um, Basically, it was asked that starting July, we want to make sure that offices are reopening um, and not solely online, Um, especially those offices where the only way to interact with them was really through uh, visiting their office. So those have been adjusted on there. And then starting August here, uh, coming up, then we're going to open up and have everybody reporting back. And then of course. The 16th of August is a week before our class begin, So we expect everything there to be kind of fully 100% open um, and ready to go there as we start receiving students in to be able to move into campus. So um, those things are there. Uh, There's still a lot of online stuff still lingering um, that's been helpful for some students that are looking for the online aspect of things. Um, So we haven't abandoned it completely, but at the same time, Um, It's still bringing back the kind of in-person stuff that's there
3: certainly wish you the the best of luck as you navigate the uh, the full return to to campus um, and I suppose dealing with you know so, some of the the hybrid stuff that will still exist and Derek I mean you've provided loads of insights and and you're clearly so knowledgeable and passionate about uh, you know education for our listeners who might want to, to get in touch with you um, you know have've heard something you've said that really resonated and and want to reach out is there a way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, um, they can just, uh, I guess, shoot me an email and that's fine. So it's D-T-F-U-R-U-K at hawaii.edu.
3: Perfect. Well, uh, I I, I certainly uh, have learned a lot from our our chat and uh, want to to wish you all the best for the upcoming academic year. And uh, just to say thank you for taking the time to join myself and Matt today.
1: Thank you, Colm and Matt.
3: I felt Derek offered a ton of insights in that interview. He had practical advice on technology, online communities, presenting, peer advising, changing jobs and institutions. The breadth and depth of his knowledge is truly phenomenal. Before getting to Daniel Gleason's interview, just
0: wanted to plug our series on our Adventures in Advising YouTube channel, Dane's Desk. Dane Zanowski from Temple University has interviewed a wonderful group of advising professionals, some of those including Dr. Tim Cox from Lafayette College, Gavin Farber from Temple University, Amber King from Delaware Technical College, and his most recent guest, Jackie Graves, also from Temple University. Check out the most recent episode on our YouTube channel with Jackie. And the August 11th episode will have Dr. Loxley Nibs from Florida Gulf Coast University. Again, that's on YouTube at Adventures in Advising. And you can check out the playlist for Dane's Desk by Dane Zanowski. Next interview on the podcast is with Daniel Gleason from California State University, Long Beach. Daniel Gleason is a native of Western Massachusetts. He earned a BA in philosophy from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and MS in human development from Wheelock College. Daniel has held a variety of positions across a few industries and started working in higher education in 2009 as an adjunct instructor of human development. He eventually developed more interest in the field of advising while working at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. Having gained experience in educational technology, he started his current position at California State University, Long Beach in 2014 to assist the implementation of their e-advising tools. As his position has grown, he's been an integral part of CSULB's well-recognized Coordinated
3: Care Network. Daniel, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
3: We are delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you, Daniel. And um, w- when we chat to guests, one of the things we like to do is, I suppose, get to know you and get our, our, give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you. And as Matt outlined in your bio, you worked, uh, you know, not just in higher ed, but in, in uh, different spaces. Could you, suppose, talk to us a little bit about like your, how you found your, the route into higher ed and, and how you found yourself where you are now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the I think one of the interesting things about my career trajectory is that I started in the very early beginning of education um, and I was a preschool teacher. So when I started with uh, I got my degree in philosophy and I went to work for an organization that was more of a like a social services network in my local community. And I worked as a home visitor um, going out to families homes and really working with parents about um developmental education for their, their young kids. And, um, you know, through that, that, that experience, I really got interested in human development and eventually applied and went to grad school in, uh, in Boston, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I did a, an internship at their, uh, at the time it was called the office for childcare services. Uh, so big, they're big kind of licensing organization throughout the state. Um, and, um, I kind of pivoted a little bit and very briefly into mental health, working with kids. I didn't last very long in that field only because I, you know, I, I just determined it really wasn't for me. I think in the position that I was in at that time, working with kids that were really experiencing some real trauma in their lives, I just, you know, from my own emotional state, I couldn't really do it. Um, So I ended up, um, you know, in, uh, I, I made another pivot at that point I mean, this is, you know, obviously I'm talking here and we're talking, you know, years of time, but, um, you know, I made another pivot and I started working at, uh, uh, a large, uh, yoga and meditation center in Western Massachusetts. Uh, it's called the Kripalu center for yoga and meditation, uh, arguably the largest of its type in the country. Uh, people from all, all across the country and the world would go there to learn how to become yoga teachers, learn about meditation, other kinds of programming. And, um, you know, and at that time, I was going through my own self-discovery of who I was, who I wanted to be. And you know it was really a kind of a pivotal moment for me. But that is sort of where I actually first got the taste of technology and and uh, technology in business applications. Um So as I was working there, I was kind of tapped to be brought into this project where they were uh, renewing all of their software, like all of their their uh, guest services software, all of their technology. And, um, I was in a role as kind of like a super user where I was in my department and I was learning how to use it and training others, how to use it and doing documentation. Um, you know, and I, I had like another job as part of that too, but, um, but that's kind of where I first really got into that technology bug. And, um, as I was there for a couple of years, um, you know, life took me to California for the first time. And that was, I think at about, uh, I want to say that was like 2007, um, and uh, I ended up uh, meeting a woman and I got married uh, shortly after that. Um, kind of this whirlwind romance. But um, but yeah, so that's, that's how I first ended up in California. Now, I was only there for about a year before um, my wife and I ended up moving to Beaumont, Texas. And in Beaumont, Texas is where I really started working in higher ed. Now, the interesting thing about this is that... The, the organization I worked for, the institution was a SUNY institution. It was uh, Empire State College, which is part of the State University of New York, you know, their system. And I was just doing adjunct um, adjunct teaching, human development. I also had a – I got in a full-time job in the local area with a small educational publishing company. And so, uh, again, some technology focused there, um, creating uh, educational materials for um, – like elementary school, middle school for, you know, for their standardized testing and so forth. And, um, at that time it was like the 2010, 2011 era. Um, and you know, the economy was crashing at that time. It was, you know, it was a really bad time for our economy and, uh, the company I was working for, uh, there was a layoff basically. And I was part of that. Um, so, my wife was working at that university, Lamar university. She's a instructor, we're a faculty member there. And I had applied to a bunch of jobs and I ended up getting a job working with the learning communities at that institution. So there was a few different learning communities and, um, it wasn't really very established at the time, but, uh, you know, I was able to convince them that I would be good for the job. And so, uh, they hired me. Um, And yeah, I started that position. And so I was, you know, working, uh, coordinating these learning communities and working with like student, um, student mentors. Um, but then I was part of that job. I was doing advising for the students in the learning community. And I think that really was maybe that was the first, yeah, that was maybe my first exposure to like real pure advising. Um, and yeah, I really, I loved it. I loved working with, uh, students at that age, um. And, you know, kind of seeing, looking back at my own experience of being a college student and kind of knowing what I did right, what I did wrong, and kind of being able to be like, you know, it's your life, but, you know, from my experience, there's a couple pathways you could take, and here's my recommendation. You know, that kind of like type of, you know, mentorship or advising. Um, after a little while in that position, um, my wife and I, we did move back to California. So this was 2014. And uh, I, I was applying all over the place to different universities in Southern California. And I happened to land the job at Cal State Long Beach. E advising coordinator was the first position I held. Um, so Dewan Jackson, who I know was a guest on your podcast before, uh, was my supervisor and she, she hired me. Um, and so, you know, in those early days, um, 2014, Cal State Long Beach had you know, about I think a year prior, Cal State Long Beach had applied for a few grants for for new e advising systems, and those e advising systems, I mean this was like the wild wild west of that kind of stuff. I mean it you know it wasn't as widespread as as it is now, and so um, it was all very new, and I was I was learning. They were you know everyone was learning at the same time basically, um, but we you know over you know, a few years, we, we built out our, our structure and, um, you know, and things developed from there. I mean, EAB, right. We're, we're all kind of familiar with EAB. Um, they, they, their product has changed over the years, you know, from 2014 to present. And, you know, through those changes um, you know, I, I've been in a pretty interesting role to, to, to facilitate that, to help implement that um, uh, about, I'd say about two years ago, I did kind of change my job a little bit and I became more focused on the project management because originally in that, that e-advising coordinator role, I was doing active advising. Like I was meeting with students regularly and also working with the e-advising systems and, you know, some colleagues as well. But, um, you know, after a few years, um, the project management um, – really kind of took over for me, like as far as interest. And not that I lost interest in advising. I think I see myself, even though I don't directly advise, you know, as much or even, you know, at all these days, um, I feel like what I do is facilitating the, you know, in a lot of ways, helping facilitate the act of advising and supporting it through the coordinated care network, through different kinds of initiatives, progress reports, data analytics. Um, so even though I'm not on the ground, I'm in the community, um, I train all the advisors and I also do the policy training, um, for, you know, our academic policy. So I'm very much in that world. Um, it's just, it's a little bit of a different look for me these days. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah. So I definitely, we're going to have a lot to talk about with data analytics, kind of maybe the progression of your job starting at long beach as the advising coordinator to, um, your title now. And what you do with with the with the program management, but for those that may not know too much about Cal State Long Beach, they probably have heard about CSULB. But how would you describe um, Cal State Long Beach, and even maybe even going into like the advising structure? Are you in a decentralized centralized advising?
2: Yeah. So Cal State Long Beach is. I don't know if we're the largest of the system. I think we might be. I don't know Fullerton and us. I think we kind of trade off one year they're bigger, one year we're bigger. But I think. know cal state long beach is one of the larger campuses um it is very close to the chancellor's office uh in long beach and so i think that proximity i don't i don't know if we would be considered the flagship i don't you know and i don't feel that way necessarily but like you know i think the proximity there is that kind of relationship with the ceo and um you know just having that kind of partnership Um, We are a decentralized uh, advising structure, so there are college advising centers, as well as the University Center for Undergraduate Advising, which is my home office, the the UCUA, University Center for Undergraduate Advising. Um, There's also uh, some other kind of supplemental, um, like EOP, the Educational Opportunity Program, the TRIO programs have their their advising uh, unit. So we have some colleges have faculty advisors. So there's some mixed model going on where like advising center, but also faculty advisors for when you get later on into your academics. Um, you know, the university um, diverse, um, you know, I think uh, again, uh, a lot of engagement with students, faculty, staff. Um, yeah, it's a really, I mean, I'm happy to be there. It's a really interesting uh, place to be. Um, and I think what I like about it is, we're we are always trying to push the envelope, um, you know, for for different kinds of initiatives on the e-advising front for sure, but also in other areas as well. So, um, yeah, I kind of like that. I like kind of being on that cutting edge as much as we can
3: be. Daniel, you mentioned. Um, earlier that uh, you were hired by Duan Jackson, and uh, that she was a guest all the way back on episode thirteen, exploring pathways to leadership. She was fantastic; some really great insights into leadership. But I suppose interested in, in hearing, you know, from you in terms of what what it was like to to work with Duan, and, and maybe what you learned from her.
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, Duan Jackson is, I mean, arguably one of the most um, amazing facilitators of advising um that I've met. Um, and I don't even know if that's the best way to put it. Um I mean she I mean she was a role model for me for one. Um and you know she always provided me with enough room to do what I needed to do, but also enough guidance to not mess it up, you know, or not like blow it up. Right. I mean she, you know, she was always there when I had any kind of crisis, not, you know, crisis, you know, we're talking about a crisis in a very, very low scale kind of a way here, but any sort of, um, you know, issues that came up, or, you know, just questions that I had. And so she was just always very approachable. Um, I mean, over the years, her and I, we developed a really good working relationship, and I would say a friendship too, you know, I mean, we, um, you know, we became, you know, close. Um, So when she went off to the chancellor's office, it was not you know my happiest day but um happy for her because i think what she brings to the uh to the entire CSU is something that um is probably unparalleled i mean and i'm not i'm not being superfluous with that i think it's really an accurate statement there
0: yeah and we're going to make sure to share this episode with, with Duan so she can listen to all the great information that you have but also the you know comments that you have the, the great comments that you have about Duan now, also at Long Beach, you know, you've talked about first starting as the e advising coordinator and now as the e advising project lead and trainer. Can you talk about like kind of that progression in terms of like when you started, kind of what your role entailed as the coordinator and how advising was incorporated to that into your role now?
2: Yeah. So in that in the in the in the beginning with the as the e advising coordinator, um, the the idea behind that position was that. Um, you know, whoever was in that position would be would be working as an advisor on the ground, so that they could really intimately know how the tools work. Right. So you're using it every day, and you're seeing like, how it works, or how it doesn't work. And then the, the taking that information, and then going back to our leadership team, and you know, the kind of the implementation team at the time, and saying to them, like, you know, it's working great this way, not really working great this way, I think maybe, we need to add a add a category, or we need to we need to include this other data that maybe is not there. Um, and so, you know, for the first couple of years, that's that's a lot of what I did. Is I would, um, I, you know, I was doing uh, working using the tools, doing training, training others on how to use them, um, creating all the documentation and all that kind of stuff, and then working with um, that larger team to really, you know. Uh, hone in on the system. And as we implemented new, new bells and whistles or new functionality, um, we did, we always did that very intentionally. Um, you know, always at a pace that felt, you know, okay. You know, at a pace that wasn't like over overwhelming. I mean, it, it may, it may have been overwhelming at times, but I think in retrospect, it was, it was, it was all well-timed. So, um, our leadership changed a little bit over those years, and so um, uh, Lynn Mahoney uh, was our—I uh, guess I don't—I'm not exactly sure what her position was at the time. They—I I mean the exact you know title of her position—but um, she was um, she was she was in a very important role um, with the implementation of e-advising. I mean, she was the, one of the two people that brought it to the campus. So Lynn Mahoney who now is the president of San Francisco state university and Tom Enders, who is another, um, incredible individual who was, you know, pretty fairly well known in the CSU. Um, you know, between those two, they really brought the whole movement, I think to the CSU. So, um, but there was changeover. I mean, they, they went on to, to bigger, better things. And, um, you know, it almost was like, not Not that there was like a void, but that um, there was we needed someone that was driving things forward, and not. And I'm not claiming that that person was exactly me, Um, but I was really interested in moving moving forward with the technology. I got really into it, and so um, you know, working with Duan and and uh, you know, and our AVP at the time, and just really trying to suggest like you know, here here are things that we could be doing. I think at the and at that time too, the CSU was starting to adopt it more. Um, other campuses were, so we were. There was more of a little bit of a community going on, and um, yeah, and I mean, eventually, um, you know, my role just kind of changed into that more of a project management, and and this I think really did uh, uh, it, it, when the coordinated care, the concept of the coordinated care, became more of a, of a relevant thing, right? And this is part of the EAB changing their functionality. They acquired grades first and, um, that, that brought in appointment scheduling into that platform. Um, and then their, their coordinated care with care units and alerts and cases, um, progress reports became part of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's really where I just, I don't know if I like, I mean, I just kind of stepped into that role or, I mean, I I, I wanted it to happen. So I kind of, I advocated for myself to make that happen for myself, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, but I had the support. I mean, Dwan was supportive of that. And um, there really wasn't anyone on campus that, I guess, either wanted to do it or that was in a position to do it because there are other responsibilities. And so I, I ended up there and I, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled, you know, I love doing it.
3: Yeah, we can hear the, the interest and in, in the passion, which is fantastic. I suppose for, you know, we probably have listeners who are very familiar with e-advising and e-advising tools. For listeners who might not be as familiar, can you talk to us, I suppose, a little bit about like what, what you mean when you talk about a, a, a e-advising tools and how you go about using them um, in, in your role and at the institution?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question because I think in that term e-advising tools has changed over time. Um I think when we talk about it right now, we kind of talk about it in maybe two or three different areas. So the first and maybe the biggest is the EAB tool, so the core their SSC navigate, the the smart guidance um the, uh, different campuses may call it something different, but EAB, the company, and then SSC Navigate, I think is their, like, that's the tool. Um, so that tool is comprised of um, a few different um, components or pillars, call them. Um, you've got the uh, the strategic uh, care, all right, so that's your care units. You've got the intelligence, which is the the data analytics, and then you've got the smart guidance, which is the, the degree planning. And um, EAB, they're, they're breaking into that world um, very fast. Um, but prior to them, I mean, there's other degree planners, you know, uh, degree audits and degree planners that exist. And we, we've been on a, de- we've been on a planner called the smart planner for, well, since th- that one, it was one that, you know, when I started in 2014, we had that one, we were using it, we still use it. Um, And so that, that tool is designed really to help students just visualize and see what requirements they have to complete to graduate. So there is a degree audit, which looks at things kind of retroactively. So like, these are, these are your requirements that you've completed. I mean, it also does tell you what's left, but the degree planner gives a student kind of like a, a semester by semester breakdown of, you know, this is what's left. So it includes major requirements, GEs, electives if necessary. And, um, it, you know, that tool really, I think by design is meant to eliminate the anxiety students have about when am I going to graduate or what should I take next semester. And I, I want to connect this back to advising because I think that's important because advising should not just be about schedule planning, right? I mean, we, we probably all agree this. Um, so having a tool like a, a degree planner gives you that space to have other conversations. You don't have to have your your entire meeting you know, 15, 30 minutes does not have to be about what classes to take. It can be about what are you interested in? What what are you struggling with? You know, how can I help you, right? Those kinds of really important advising topics can take precedence over the, you need to take course A, B, and C. You know what I mean? Um, so, so there's that. Going back to the EAV side of things. With the data analytics, you know, that's always been interesting to me. And I think with... Some campuses it takes on I mean it, it can take on forms in, in different kinds of ways. On our campus, to be completely honest, we've not really embraced it as much as we've embraced other kinds of functionality. And I think it's hard when you when you work I mean with, in academia, with, um, with something with data analytics, I think it's hard for people to really accept, what it's doing, right? I mean it's taking it's taking data, numbers, figures, factors and it's generating a potential outcome. And the thing that I that I have my issue with it, and not that I don't think it doesn't have a place, but my issue with it is that in no way does it acknowledge the human spirit and the human capacity to thrive and overcome obstacles. It just basically gives you an analysis of essentially an analysis of the past. I mean, it's looking at historical data and predicting or trying to predict what a student X, Y, or Z may, what, what, what may happen to them, right? But, again, it doesn't acknowledge anything that is human. And so, and I think this is the disconnect with advising because advising is about what's human. Um, and there's obviously a lot of uh, number crunching and data that we, we incorporate that and we use that on a regular basis. But the core of advising is human. And so I think that's the disconnect there. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, and I I think that data analytics has a place. I think it's really useful for high level, looking at high level trends, high level, um, you know, or departmental kinds of uh, insights. Um, But when you really drill down to the individual student, I think it becomes really murky. And and I think other people recognize that, right? I mean, so so there's that um the coordinated care network though is i feel like where a lot of the value for for our campus at cal state long Beach, i I feel like that's where a lot of the value comes and i feel like that's where we get our that's where we get our money's worth with the tool right we're paying x amount of dollars for this tool and i feel like the coordinated care is where we can get the return on investment the most return on investment um so Coordinated care on our campus consists of different kinds of care units and care units are basically where areas where students can get support that could be academic advising it could be tutoring, academic coaching. We've got our um, our enrollment services, our financial aid and our records uh, divisions in there. We've got uh, our veterans in there. We've got writing support and coming soon, we're going to have our career development center, which is really exciting. So um, it allows students to access the resources in one place, right? So they don't have to go to multiple systems to get help. They can go to one place. They can they can look for the type of support they need. And they can find out when, you know, they can schedule appointments. They can find out when drop-in times are. Um, and so for students, I think that's really helpful. On the behind the scenes, though, what's happening with that is and maybe shifting back towards data analytics is the data warehouse where we can query the system through the advanced search and we can identify students who you know who who need who need support you know either by you know based on different kinds of metrics gpas units the courses they took or the courses they didn't pass um all kind of, you know their academic standing we can use that data warehouse to query the system and we can provide, we can generate lists of students that we want to reach out to. Um, now, and it's not that simple. It's not just like you generate a list, you reach out to the student and you're done. Um, there's a level of, um, you know, you've got to review, you've got to look at that list of students and you've got to review and kind of see where things are going. Because it's, it's more nuanced, right? It's not just, here's a list of students, right? It's like, here's a list of students. Now you've got to find out what's going on with all these students. And that takes time. And so the tool, I think, shortens the time. Because you can get your list of students where before you'd have to, you know, scour through manual transcripts or, you know, other kinds of manual Excel spreadsheets, whatever. Um, This tool makes that happen a lot quicker, but you still have to take the time to like to review that and to determine like, okay, this student does really need some sort of outreach. And and if they do, then we're gonna we're gonna do our best to do that outreach, and so we can use appointment campaigns, we can do progress reports, we can issue alerts, and uh, you know, and, and uh, use uh, case management type functionality to to support those students. Um, so it's cross it's cross collaborative with different departments, different divisions, and um, I think there, and I think that uh, I think the future the um, the future of this. Um, I, you know, I don't know what the future will look like, but I think the future of this is something in, in the realm of like AI um, chatbots, right? So those are becoming more um, prevalent. I mean, we just got we just we just got our first chatbot um, recently. Um, it's not focused on advising yet, but I think in the future that could potentially be something that will be. Um, so, yeah, it's an. I mean, it's an exciting time. Um, we'll see what. Yeah, we'll see how it unfolds.
0: Yeah, I mean, technology is here to stay. And it's always changing, you know, and even like the chatbot, I mean, it can be a great addition to kind of like a flipped model in a sense where, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. some of those quick questions could get answered or there might be incorporated with you have modules that that students do. So that way, yeah, when you do have these appointments, you spend more time on what needs to be discussed versus like going over, like this is how you register for a class or this is how you do, you know, this or that. Uh, But I do like that you talked about how, Advising, Yeah, it's the human spirit, you know. Yes, we have these e-advising tools, we have the data, analytics, but it's all meant to help support advising and not replace um, advising or the actual person meeting with the student. And but Long Beach has always kind of been ahead of the game. And I think um, in one of the, I think it was one of the interviews that you, and I think Dr. Uh, Kerry Johnson were on with uh, CSU Long Beach as Beach TV. Uh, Dr. Johnson had talked about how CSU Long Beach leads the way in the CSU, and and this is at 2019. I would imagine it's kind of still the same, uh, and that was in the top 10 in the country with high tech usage. And over this last over a year, you know, we've had the pandemic. How has you know technology or e advising tools, I guess, helped or has anything changed during this time? Prior to the pandemic, during the pandemic, or even looking after the pandemic.
2: Yeah, I think I mean the pandemic changed everything, right? I mean, I, and that's cliche to say at this point because we're we're still in it, really. Um, but I think for for let's say advising or for academia for Cal State Long Beach, um, it really forced us to look at um, how we can how we can really reach students in a virtual space. Um, and so, I mean, in those in those early weeks and months uh you know back in March and April of 2020 um i mean i was i was we brought our tutoring centers all uh, online so our tutoring centers were they operated but students could not schedule their own appointments it was they could go in they could make an appointment through someone you know face to face or all that but they weren't allowed to go online and schedule so pretty quickly and i mean the semester was at the end point there but um, but we for over the summer, we prepared so that when we came back in the fall of 2020, that students would be able to schedule their their tutoring appointments online. And so that was a big thing that we did. And I mean, we weren't really planning on doing it that way. Um, but the pandemic forced us to make that change faster than we had anticipated. Um, we also brought in um, different kinds of uh, alerts, uh, you know, that we could uh, use for like case management. Um, we brought in our financial aid and our records into the system so that students, again, could access those um, more easily through through our, we call it Beach Connect on our campus, the Beach Connect. Um, and I just think in general, um, you know, utilizing utilizing some of the advanced search features to, again, as I was talking about a, a few moments ago about like the data warehouse and querying that so that you can identify the students that are off track Um, I think that that happened on a more robust kind of level. And, um, what I think I've seen is we had a lot more, we had more touch points with students in terms of like behind the scenes. So like we were like doing a lot more of like reviewing student records and making sure that students were on track and, only really trying to meet with those students that like were absolutely necessary. Now, if a student, you know, if a student came to us and they needed to meet with us, of course, like that meeting will happen. But I think we were, I think before, when we were on campus, you know, it was easier to meet with students. Um, Well, and now that I say this, the pandemic has shown it's actually easier to meet with students virtually. (laughs) I mean, that's actually the truth. Um, But I think the work, was the work of doing it was a little harder in the beginning, you know, as in the beginning of the pandemic, it's gotten easier over time. Um, and so, um, it, it kind of, it changed everything, but it also allowed us to like reframe, like how we go about the business of advising. And I mean, some things also stayed the same too. Like, I mean, the core of advising didn't really change just the delivery and maybe how we approached it changed. So, um, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I like to say we're on the cutting edge and I like to say that we were, you know, in the top. Um, I mean, I think it's true to a certain extent, but it's, I mean, it's not really a competition either. I mean, um, especially with the CSU, I think, I mean, we have a really great community in the CSU. And I mean, there are folks that, I mean, colleagues of mine, I mean, Matt, yourself and and other folks, um, you know, across the state that, um, have come up with some really great, great ideas about advising and advising. And so um, I love I love that. I love hearing from other people. And I've always been really keen on self reflection. And I, I mean, I'm never the one to think we can't do it better, you know, like we can always do something better, we can always think about things differently. And I would never shy away from that. So I think the pandemic kind of brought that out to in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah, continuous improvement is, is definitely a, a good thing to to strive for. And Daniel, I'm thinking about like what you're talking about in terms of the touch points for students and the way, I suppose, in which students utilise institutions, they don't see maybe the internal divisions that we see between advising student affairs. And, and you gave a presentation, um, Blurred Lines, Academic Advising Means Career Counselling. Um, I suppose I, I think that was kind of utilising, again, kind of e- advi- advising tools and um, kind of technology. Just interested, I suppose, in, um, you know, the in terms of that like do you do you see like from learnings from the pandemic is some is that something that could be further built upon in, in do you think given what you guys have done in in terms of uh at the, at the institution with advising and kind of uh career counseling
2: yes i think you know with yeah with any large organization where you have different departments and different divisions there is a level of, call it like territorialism, right? Like we do this, you do that. Um, even though we all have the same goal, we all work the same place. Our mission is the same, you know, and not, I hate the term silo, but it's like, that's kind of what it is. Like you've got people in different areas, they do their thing, you do yours. I feel at Cal State Long Beach, I mean, we we do the best we can to to break that down, to to be cross departmental and functional. And I think, the example that you gave about the career counseling is a great one because at our campus, and this is different than other places, but at our campus, career counseling lives in student affairs, and advising lives in academic affairs. And so, how do you reconcile those two? I mean, we're both there to do. I mean, we do different jobs. We're there to do to support each other, right? And so, I think it's interesting because I I had worked. I had been working with this group for years. And it just I wanted to like I wanted first for them, I wanted you guys, to, you know, I want you career counselors to use this tool just for student information. Like there's a lot of data here, you can put notes in here. Whatever you put in there, we can see it. So we know like what you're talking about with students. And they were not I mean they were very receptive. So it's not like it was barriers that way, but it was like they had their own system right? They had their own tool, they use a tool called CareerLink. And then that was their tool, and the students made their appointments there, and they had their job postings there. And I mean, so to kind of bridge that, um, you know, I really had to to convince them and show them that the benefit here is, first of all, the student, right? If the student has access to the services in one place, they might be more likely to utilize those services. And so I tried to, you know, over time, I just, I met with them and we, we talked about different things. And and I, I would say actually the tipping point was when we started doing referrals through EA, through Beach Connect. So if an advisor wanted to refer a student to the Career Development Center, they could do that through Beach Connect. They could set an alert. It would go to someone in the Career Development Center who would receive it. And it opened a case, and then the career development center would reach out to that student, you know, say, "Hey, come and make an appointment with us," and hopefully the student would do that, go in there. Um, but, um, and if they did, we would be able to know. We would, we would say, we would the case, the case would be closed, and so we would know that referral was successful. Because before you would make a referral, and you would say, "Go to the career development center." You never knew. You never knew if they made it there, right? And so the ability to track those, those referrals, I think was the tipping point because I think then the folks on the career development side, they started to see the value of having the students in using the tool and having the students in the same place. And, you know, and eventually, you know, they, they agreed that they would, they would come on to, to our, you know, not our side, but they would come on to, to beach connect and, allow students to make appointments through their system. And it was, you know, to their credit, I mean, it was, I mean, for them, it, it's, it's change management. I mean, they're, they've got to, I mean, now they're essentially managing two systems because their previous system, I mean, it did, it does things that the beach connect EAB doesn't do right. The cre- the career relate the, the employer relation side of things. Right. So we had to reconcile that. Um, but I think anytime, and I think this is where technology is really fascinating because it really does allow you to cut through divisions. Like it's not, it's not like you do this, I do that. It's, we can all do the same stuff in the same pond, right? You know? And so um, it's just like, it's a medium. It's a, it's a conduit almost, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think it kind of even goes back to when you were talking about, like when you first started kind of how it was like the wild, wild west with some of these, like, tools and kind of convincing departments or individuals like the benefits of it and how it can be incorporated i mean i I know at csusb when we got uh eab or ssc at the time before it changed over to ssc navigate um it was like why should i have this and really trying to convince people why why we had it and you know just all really comes back to the communication, but I think it's also that whenever some of these products are purchased, it's like, make sure you bring everyone to the table that could have some type of comment or suggestion for it. Because uh, I know there some institutions, mine included, that there are some products that were just purchased on a whim, it almost seems like. And then it's like, well, now that we have it, you need to use it. And it's like, wait, but why? So yeah, and but nowadays, I mean, years later now it seems like you know, a lot more people are on board with with utilizing a lot of these and incorporating it into their their daily work, whether it's in advising or student affairs or or whatnot. Now, kind of shifting gears a little bit, you also teach at Cal State Long Beach, um, the career and personal explorations class. Can you talk more about that course? Uh, is it for a specific group of students, uh, what the learning outcomes are?
2: Yeah, so that course um Career and personal explorations, as you said, is is a G, it's actually a GE course, and it's our category is category E lifelong learning, um, and that course it is it's in the College of Education, um, and we are uh, the University Center for Undergraduate Advising has partnered with the um, that uh, the a- ASEC department, the Advanced Studies of Education and Counseling. Um, We've partnered with them, and a few. This has been probably, I think, I want to say, four years. Four years going here. We partnered with them to have some sections for undeclared students, and um, myself and some colleagues of mine. We've had the the ability to teach this course, um, and what we do with this is because it, these sections are specifically reserved for undeclared students. We've kind of tailored it. So we use it as a way to really help those students who are who are undeclared um, really help them figure out like what it is, what it is you want. And by that, I mean like, what are your goals? What are your short-term goals? what are your long-term goals? And then once you kind of establish those kind of like high level things, then let's kind of dr- let's take that down and let's drill down into, okay, these, these are the steps that you might need to take to get there and very simple stuff like choosing a major right so how do you choose a major well what are you interested in what are your strengths what are your weaknesses um what kind of a um what what kind of a career do you want would inform your major but also you should understand that a lot of times your major does not equal your career right i have my philosophy major i mean i feel like i use my training every day, but I'm certainly not a philosopher, right. Um, So I think it's having to like help students recognize that it's really about the skills you attain in the pursuit of your degree. And any degree will give you a certain amount of skills. Um, Some degrees, the, the some degrees and some majors will give you certain skills. But there's also like a, a basic set of skills that you should learn, right? And that's that's kind of where your general education comes in, right? Um, so, so the course we 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 designed it so that we we kind of work through that process with these students. And um, you know, I I mean, I love I love that opportunity because, and especially now because I am not doing as much advising, and so I, I it gives me the opportunity to really have that contact with students, which is something I really I do love it um and so so that that kind of fills that 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 void for me right now um we we've worked with a couple of different um like call them like uh curriculums i guess yeah we've worked with a few different curriculums um last year we kind of abandoned all the the existing stuff that we had and we just kind of decided that you know what cuz it was all virtual we basically had to teach these you know, through, through zoom. Um, and we did different kinds of like asynchronous, synchronous type models. Um, but we just had decided like, we're just going to build our course the way we want. Cause we, we used the curriculum. It was like a, an established curriculum and it was, it was not bad. It just, I think a few of us were like, well, it's okay here, but this aspect we don't like. And so we just kind of took what we liked, but we just built it out on our own way, how we wanted it. And so we, we, we were kind of like a little group um, where we, we talk, you know, we, we have a similar, I mean, we have some flexibility, right? Like I can teach it how I want, my colleague can do what he or she wants. um, But, but our, our objectives and our learning outcomes are kind of the same. And so it's really identifying, you know, what, what the student's goals are, helping them understand how to achieve those goals. And then, you know, kind of helping them just determine like, you know, the major, because the major is, one of the hinge points with that. We want them to really focus on like, you know, what major do you want, but also understanding like things can change. Like you can say to me today, I want to do this. And then a week from now, or a year from now, a year from now it gets a little cagey here, but, um, but like, you know, you can change your mind, right? That, that's okay. Um And so, yeah, it's a really good experience. I think, I mean, I, I hope the students like it. I don't know. I've never looked at my rate, my professor. So if you've ever seen it, don't tell me, I don't want to know.
3: Well, I think your your willingness to kind of tear up the curriculum and build it again is yet another example of you know continuous improvement and, and your dedication to that. And I have no doubt that there'll be kind of listeners out there who want to get in touch with you to kind of learn more about kind of e-advising and different tools and best practice and things like that. If listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a way they can do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say just um, email um, uh, Gleason. so that's uh, G-L-E-A-S-O-N, and at CSULB.edu. Um, I think if you Google Daniel Gleason CSULB, you'll probably, I mean, Google these days, you know, you can just do, do about just anything with it. So um, yeah, I'm out there. Um, I certainly um, yeah, uh, would not discourage anyone from reaching out if they chose to um more than happy to talk
3: the the only danger when you're googling your name is they may get donald gleason the actor and vice versa but i have no doubt daniel that um yeah listeners will want to to reach out and i just want to say thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt. it's been really interesting to get some insights into the work um, that you're doing and just to wish you continued success in your career
2: thank you thank you both so much i uh yeah really this was um really fun to do. So um, thanks again.
3: I found Daniel's path into advising fascinating. His learnings along the way and the influence of Dwan Jackson on his career. Also, the way in which CSULB is utilizing e-advising tools and data analytics is innovative and interesting. So thanks to Daniel for sharing. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you,
0: as always, for joining us. And if you will, subscribe to our podcast and leave a message on pretty much any podcast platform. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, you name it. Take care and keep advising.